place we're experiencing on some level the dream that Martin Luther King talked about many years ago and could only describe but could not live in his life before he died though he said that he was confident that we will get there and he said that he knew that he would not get there in his lifetime but he felt assured that one day it would be. Now this marks the 50th anniversary of his assassination this year. The dream is now in our hands. And the question then before us today is, what are we supposed to be doing about it? Now I want to begin to answer that question by taking us back more than 50 years to February 26, 1965, the day an Alabama state trooper killed Jimmy Lee Jackson, a 26-year-old black civil rights worker. In response to Jimmy Lee Jackson's murder, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference called for a march from Selma to Montgomery to demand voting rights for all citizens. Two weeks later, on March 7, 1965, 600 civil rights activists gathered in Selma to join a planned march to Montgomery, which, was the state, which is the state capital. It's a day known now as Bloody Sunday. On the outskirts of Selma, at the Edmund Pettus Bridge, marchers encountered a line of police, three deep, carrying billy clubs, guns, and gas masks. And the police charged into the marchers, clubs swinging, and beat many men and women, young and old, bloody. As described in an article in the UU World magazine last year, national television carried what happened to Dorchester, Massachusetts, where the Unitarian Universalist minister, Reverend James Reeb and his wife, Marie, watched. And then came the call to Selma. Dr. King called on people of faith, people of all faiths, ministers and others, from across the country to come to Selma and to march with him to Montgomery. All over the United States, people wrestled with the call to come to Selma. Should they march, putting themselves in the midst of the violence that they had all seen on television? James Reeb thought hard about whether to leave his wife and four young children. He decided that he had to help. He bade his family goodbye, and he boarded a plane from the Boston area. Reeb had become a Unitarian minister in 1957, and he was called to serve all souls in Washington, D.C., 
which is in a racially mixed neighborhood and one of our only racially diverse congregations in, the time, in that time. In July of 1964, he left All Souls and he accepted a position with the American Friends Service Committee in Massachusetts. And he and his wife and their family now included four young children, moved to Dorchester, Massachusetts, and he began working for better living conditions in economically depressed areas of Boston. Now, Reeb was a member of the Unitarian Church of Arlington in Boston, but he, or Arlington Street Church in Boston, but he frequently preached as a guest minister in the suburbs all around the Boston area. He used these opportunities to urge people in largely white congregations to pay attention and to work for change and racial justice. Now, Reeb was with thousands who gathered on a Tuesday in Selma to march to Montgomery, but were again turned back at the Edmund Pettus Bridge. Reeb and others decided to stay in Selma and try again on Thursday. That night, a group of ministers went out to dinner at a place called Walker's, one of the very few racially integrated restaurants in Selma. While others departed by car after dinner, Reeb and two other Unitarian Universalist ministers, Orloff Miller and Clark Olson, left on foot. Three head, the three headed side by side to the chapel where Dr. King was to speak. People were really upset that the march did not go on, that he called it off on that Tuesday and said, no, we're not going to do this again and face these billy clubs and face these police. We come now to the close of a year that has proven that we as a nation have a heart problem. Somebody's got to be willing to go all the way until there is a transformation. Well, they had not gone far from Walker's restaurant when four or five white men came at them from across the street. Frightened, the three walked faster. They realized one of the men had a stick. When the attackers reached the three ministers, one swung the heavy stick and smashed the side of James Reeb's head. Miller and Olson were beaten and kicked as well onto the sidewalk. When the attack was over, it was clear that Reeb was seriously hurt. After some uh, desperate search for help in a city that was hostile to outside agitators, the three ministers found a phone at the Boynton Insurance Office and obtained an ambulance from a Negro funeral home next door. Badly hurt, Reeb needed to get to the hospital in Birmingham where there was a neurosurgeon. Miller and Olson accompanied James Reeb in the ambulance, which was driven by an African-American. A police car escorted them through Selma but dropped away and refused to accompany them once the ambulance reached the city limits. Just outside of the city, the ambulance got a flat tire. The vehicle was surrounded 
by a threatening crowd. So no one dared get out to change the tire. The ambulance drove back to Selma on the rim with the flat tire flopping. Finding a place to make a phone call and find another ambulance was very difficult. Few blacks in the city had phones. They finally found a phone at a radio station where the driver had once worked, and they called for another ambulance. They transferred the very ill James Reeb, and they set out again for Birmingham, this time reaching the hospital where Reeb immediately began surgery. News traveled quickly that James Reeb had been beaten and was in critical condition. It traveled back to Martin Luther King and all the people in the chapel that night, and it traveled all the way to the president in Washington, D.C. In sharp contrast to the media silence that had greeted Jimmy Lee Jackson's death two weeks earlier, the evening news all over the country carried the story of the white Unitarian Universalist minister who had been attacked in Selma. President Lyndon Johnson had been notified in the White House and he sent a government airplane to take Marie Reeb to her husband's side. In James Reeb's hospital room, there was a bouquet of yellow roses from the president. On March 11th, two days after his arrival in Selma, James Reeb died. His death so shocked the country and the United States Congress that President Johnson sent the Voting Rights Act to Congress within days. Dr. King, invited to Washington to support the Voting Rights Act, declined. Instead, he delivered the eulogy at Reeb's funeral, saying, so in his death, James Reeb says something to each of us, black and white alike, says that we must substitute courage for caution, says to us that we must be concerned not merely about who murdered him, but about the system, the way of life, the philosophy that produced the murder. His death says to us that we must work passionately, unrelentingly to make the American dream a reality so that he did not die in vain. In his eulogy, Dr. King asked rhetorically, who killed Jim Reeb? He answered, a few ignorant men. He then asked, what killed Jim Reeb? And answered, an irrelevant church? An indifferent clergy? An irresponsible political system? A corrupt law enforcement hierarchy? A timid federal government? and an uncommitted Negro population. He exhorted us to leave the ivory towers of learning and storm the bastions of segregation and see to it that the work Jim Reeb had started be continued so that the white South might come to terms with its conscience. We cannot stand down. Yes, with Dr. King we must confess and testify there comes a time when silence is betrayal. Like anybody, I would like to live 
a long life, longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over. I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you. But I want you to know the night that we as a people will get to the promised land. If you want to Reverend Richard Leonard from All Souls in New York City recalled in his journal, after the funeral, all of us in attendance went to where we could watch President Johnson speaking to Congress. Johnson took the podium and began, at times history and fate meet in a single time, in a single place to shape a turning point in man's unending search for freedom. So it was at Lexington and Concord. So it was a century ago at Appomattox. So it was last week in Selma, Alabama. 45 minutes later, he concluded his ringing address in which he had urged Congress to help him pass a new voting rights bill. Everyone in the room where we had stood throughout was crying. Men and women having just left the funeral, old and young, black and white, explained Leonard. As Dr. King said in his excerpt that we listened to just a moment ago, if we don't know what we would die for, then we aren't really living. And I was, as I was contemplating this sermon on courage, of course, I was reminded of Jim Reeb's story. If you read Reeb's biography, you'll know that, that Jim and Marie wrestled seriously with their fear and with whether or not Jim should leave her and their children behind. They knew that while his white skin offered him some protection, the South didn't take kindly to civil rights workers of any race. Yet along with his fear, Reeb carried within him a deep conviction. A conviction cultivated and strengthened over years of commitment. He wasn't some Johnny-come-lately to the cause. And his conviction was his deeply held faith in the dignity and the equality of every person. His belief that in a democracy, to have worth and dignity 
means you also have to have a vote. Otherwise, what is your worth really worth? And in the end, it was that conviction and the depth of his commitment to it that compelled him to face whatever fears he might have had and go to Selma in spite of them. That decision cost him his life. For me, Reeb's story reminds me about some of our misconceptions about courage in our culture. That courage isn't really about, about banishing our fears, about making them go away with bravado or bluster, much less with violence. Rather, courage is to possess something inside of us that is so strong, we will pursue it despite our fears. My colleague Galen Gingrich has said about courage, to know courage is to know a calling that is greater than fear. Not that banishes fear, but that is greater than fear. That's what Jim Reeb and so many other leaders of the civil rights movement possessed, a calling, a desire, a dream, something inside so strong it was greater than their fears. That to know courage is to know a love for someone or something that is stronger than our fear. To know love that is stronger than fear. A disciples of Christ minister from Oklahoma here, Fred Craddock. He tells another story from back in that era. He writes, I used to go home to West Tennessee where an old high school chum of mine had a restaurant. I called him Buck. Go home for Christmas and say, Merry Christmas, Buck. And I'd get a piece of chess pie and a cup of coffee for free. Every year it was the same. Then I went in, Merry Christmas, Buck. He said, let's go for coffee. I said, what's the matter? Isn't this the restaurant? He said, I don't know. Sometimes I wonder. We went out for coffee. We sat there, and pretty soon he said, did you see the curtain? I said, Buck, I saw the curtain. I always see the curtain. What he meant by curtain is this. They had a number of buildings in this little town they called shotgun buildings. They're long buildings and have two entrances, front and back. One off the street and one off the alley with a curtain and a kitchen in the middle. His restaurant is one of those. If you're white, you come off the street. If you're black, you come off the alley. He said, did you see the curtain? I said, I saw the curtain. He said, the curtain has to come down. I said, good, bring it down. He said, that's easy for you to say. Come in here from out of state and tell me how to run my business. I said, okay, leave it up. He said, I can't leave it up. I said, well, take it down then. I can't take it down. He's in terrible shape. After a while, he said, if I take the curtain down, I lose a lot of my customers. If I leave the curtain up, 
I lose my soul. There are moments in every one of our lives when we have to decide. It's not always a life or death situation, but even when it's something that could harm our livelihood or our reputation or a friendship, we have to decide. Do we choose our financial gain or our own advancement over our soul? Our reputation over our soul? Our, a relationship over our soul? Because once we lose our soul, we can live a lot of more years, but be dead inside. I have a colleague, Daniel O'Connell, who used to put homework in the order of service on Sunday in his church so that the members had something to do each week to live out the message that he was sharing. There were always three levels of homework, he said. I think of them as easier, more difficult, and truly heroic. Maybe it's like getting an A, B, or a C on your homework. For example, when he delivered a sermon years ago, not that many years ago, before marriage equality was legal, and it was still very controversial, especially in Texas where he was a minister, after a sermon in support of marriage equality, he included this suggested homework, as I remember it. The easiest was to voice your support in the voting booth or in polls or other opportunities when it could make a difference but won't cost you anything. Second level was to wear a rainbow pin or a rainbow ribbon on your, uh, on your breast uh, every day to work, out in social occasions, to show your support wherever you are and to explain why you're wearing it when asked. Third was to advocate protest or even begin a movement for marriage equality in your neighborhood, in your workplace, in your school, or wherever. If nothing else, it certainly made his congregation think about the subject of the message in a less abstract way and force them to consider what they would actually do on behalf of the values that they hold dear. Now as you continue to live the dream and to help the dream come true in whatever ways you do, what homework, homework might challenge you in the way that Dr. King would if he were still alive? Speaking up to oppose people who you know when you hear racist language, whether it's in your own house or in the White House, like we heard this week, but we can lose our soul if we don't speak out when we know something's right. We might live a long time, we might preserve a relationship, but we might be dying inside. Dr. King can rest in peace if he knows that we won't rest until it's done. Thank you.
what you'll find when you look into your imagination will begin with a spit traveling in the world of my creation living there you will see what you truly wish to be if you want to Change the world, there's nothing to it.